The managerial merry-go-round in the Bundesliga from this past summer is finally starting to provide some data points. Which managers have taken off with their new clubs and which managers may already be on the hot seat? A massive domino effect initiated by names like Hansi Flick and Marco Rosa had the top clubs in Germany adjusting to life with new managers and today we'll tackle all of it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 8 of the Tactics Room, presented by Breaking the Lines. My name is Will Fowler. So happy that you've chosen to once again join me, you nutcases. Eight straight episodes. What's wrong with you for another edition of this Tactical Analysis Podcast? Happy international break. And I know for some that sounds genuine. For others, maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but a happy international break. The last one for a while, but it was not without its headlines. First of all, have to shout out, have to shout out. My USA men's national team knocking off Mexico, a crucial, crucial win in qualifying. Dos Acero, my favorite scoreline. But elsewhere, eight European tickets have been punched to the 2022 World Cup. Actually, I think it's more than that. I think it might be 12. Um, that's something I should have fact-checked. No, I'm fairly sure it's eight. This is going to sound really silly if I'm wrong. Should have done research. But European tickets have been punched to the World Cup, but shockingly, Portugal and Italy are not included. And now that I think about it, it's 10. There's 10 tickets that have been punched to the World Cup through Europe. So just pretend that I said 10 back in the beginning. But the more, most important part is Portugal and Italy will have to go through the playoff. One of the nations that did go through, though, in fact, the first nation to punch a ticket, aside from obviously Qatar, is Germany. And that's exactly where we're headed today. New manager Hansi Flick has the German national team re-entering a promising era, but the carnage in the Bundesliga that ensued due to the vacuum that he left at Bayern Munich has provided some fascinating headlines. Some of Germany's biggest clubs, Bayern, Dortmund, Leipzig, Wolfsburg, Mönchengladbach, have new managers at the helm, and that is the topic for today's episode. I had the chance to speak with Adam Kahn, BTL's own Twitter Spaces host and German football expert to discuss exactly that. Adam, truth be told, uh, knows the top flights of German football better than almost anyone I've met, which is exactly why he was the perfect guest for this discussion. We talked about how Julian Nagelsmann has evolved as a tactician in the early days of his Bayern Munich spell, whether or not Leipzig supporters should be concerned about the start to life under Jesse Marsh, and basically every other major managerial move in the Bundesliga over the summer. Adam, thank you so much once again for joining me on the Tactics Room. I loved our conversation. I'm glad we finally got some German representation on this show. I think the listeners will enjoy the conversation just as much as I did here is my conversation with Adam Kahn. I am joined now by Adam Kahn, our, uh, if you know the name, he is our Breaking the Lines Twitter Spaces host. He's, he's done his, his fair few share of, uh, of, of content for Breaking the Lines. Happy to finally have him in a podcast setting. Happier to finally meet you, Adam, face to face. I know we've, we, we know each other's voices after being on uh, the Twitter Spaces together a couple of times, but I'm finally like, I can finally match a, a face to the name and the voice. Happy we finally get to, to link up in a, in a Zoom setting. Thanks for jumping on. I'm happy that we're having this time. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. I hope that the face doesn't disappoint when all you could hear is the voice on the Twitter space. <laughs> it's, it, it's funny you mention that because this is the third time that somebody has come onto the show. Um, and I get the first time was with Alex and I, I you know, I, I, I knew what he looked like because, you know, he, he makes YouTube videos. But then I had Aiden on last episode and I had, I, I just... It's a long way of me saying I have no idea what anybody looks like until they actually jump onto the call. And it's always like, 
it's always neat to, to see, oh, is it what I was expecting or not? Um, not in a bad way. I, you know, I, uh, it's, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I am excited to finally match a, to match a, a face to the name and hopefully we'll have a solid conversation about some, uh, some Bundesliga football, essentially for the, the listeners who uh, do not yet know where we're going with this. Um, and I'll let you dive in a little bit further. There has been quite a merry-go-round in, in Bundesliga this season, just in terms of, of the managerial turnover from Hansi Flick leading, leaving Bayern Munich to the German national team, which feels like the one that, that certainly the biggest domino to fall, but maybe has kickstarted the others. I know some uh, moves were announced prior, but most were announced after. Um, kind of feels like Hansi Flick might have been the first domino to fall in that sense. Um, I kind of just want to go through the, the whole chain reaction discuss each manager who's who's now picked up his belonging and dropped them down in a new site, including we will dive into your Borussia Mönchengladbach. I assume we will speak about them yep, at length. Um, but yeah, that that's the goal uh, for, for today's episode is to just discuss that Bundesliga managerial turnover. Before we even dive into it, though, I want to get your thoughts because obviously you're, you're a bit more in tune with, uh, with the Bundesliga than I am. You've got your Bundesliga weekly newsletter. I just want to give you a chance to maybe go in, talk a little bit about, about your passion for this league specifically. Obviously, I know it's German football, so that's what you're going to be drawn to naturally. Um, but this is a league that you follow very, very closely. Yeah, like you said, I mean, it's it's a league I grew up with, and, and it's something that's been part of my life since football's really been part of my life. So it wasn't Premier League running in my household. It was always the Bundesliga. And although it's getting a bit tiresome seeing Bayern at the top of the table, there's <laughs> always a lot of interesting interesting underlying themes that happen in German football each year. I mean, specifically, if you look at the Zweite Bundesliga, the second tier, and how many just big names are in that division this season. So there's always enough entertainment to go around, even if we may not have the title race of, of some of the other top divisions in Europe. What do you, I'm glad you mentioned that. What do you, what do you wish people appreciated more about the Bundesliga? Because I totally get that. I feel like when we think about European football, at least domestically, it's always the, the Premier League is the, the crown jewel. And I spoke about this, about this with Alex a few episodes ago. But uh, me personally, I, I love the Bundesliga nearly as much as I love the Premier League. But I feel like that's not a sentiment that's shared by many people here, at least. But the Bundesliga is a fascinating league to watch. Like, what do you wish, what do you wish people appreciated more about German football? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you have to talk about really the match day experience. Just when you compare it with something like the Premier League, where pretty much the whole focus is TV revenues at this point. The Bundesliga still has this has this match-going feel where it's it's the fans at the stadium, the fans in the city that are put first and foremost. So that's why you still see standing sections, you see alcohol loud in the stands, things that would be absolutely like disallowed in England are, are commonplace in Germany and are actually kind of part of the reason why the Bundesliga and it's like the Bundesliga still have this world-renowned uh, name and is a reason why people from all over the world look at it as a destination for the weekend. I think the second point is that, like I said before, although you might not have this title challenge, you still have a really competitive side. You know, Just to see a team like Dortmund and what they're able to do in the Champions League routinely, consistently making it to at least the round of 16, and, and that we already say that they're not even a part of the equation in the title fight, kind of shows you how good some of these teams are and how good a team like Bayern is to just consistently churn out these victories to win title after title. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point to bring up because that that's uh, I feel like everyone everyone looks at a league where maybe the winner is consistent or there's one one club that consistently dominates it, like as you mentioned, Bayern in the Bundesliga, 
and the rest is written off, which I don't think is fair. I, I don't think that's that's a fair way to view a league just to see who's finishing at the top of it, especially in a sport like football where first play is not the only thing that matters. I mean, you, you look at, at some American sports and you've got, well, if you didn't win the Super Bowl or if you didn't win the World Series, you, you didn't win much of anything. But in a, in a sporting sphere like football, particularly in, in Europe, in Bundesliga, second place, third place, fourth place all matter for Champions League spots. Fifth place and sixth place matter for Europa League spots. There's a fascinating relegation battle seemingly every single season. Like, there's so much more to a league than just who's at the top of it. Although that might be what, what claims the headlines. There's so much more that goes into it. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that's what I think the Bundesliga provides. That sometimes, truthfully, the Premier League doesn't. It is those really fascinating top four races, the relegation battles that just inherently mean more because, as you said, the, the fan connection to a club is so much stronger. Um, I'm, I'm, I, that wasn't on, on the rundown, but I'm glad we, I'm glad we touched on that because uh, yeah, that, that's one of my favorite things about, about German football. I think that if you just extend, extend that to, to football in a wider sense, you know, if you look at the World Cup, for example, we remember teams like Costa Rica, like Ghana in 2010, these teams that, you know, they didn't even come out of there with a medal, but they're really the teams that stole stole the whole world's hearts. And it just shows that football is more than just the, the wins and losses at the end of the day. There's a reason you watch all 90 minutes and don't just look up the score after the game because right. storylines and how it all happens is really what makes it so much more exciting than just the just the free points on a match day. Yeah, definitely. And that's actually a fantastic segue. Uh, you bring up the World Cup, you bring up these, these storylines. I do want to dive in a little bit to the international football scene first and foremost because it is an international break. Um, first of all, congratulations. Germany was the first nation to qualify for the World Cup in 2022, aside from, of course, the host Qatar. Must be exciting uh, not to have to worry about that. Even with a, a new manager in Hansi Flick, we'll dive into that a little bit. Um, I want to get your overall assessment of Joachim Love's job as the, the manager of Germany, because it came with its highs and its lows, right? It came with a 2014 World Cup trophy. It came with a 2018 World Cup group stage exit. So, Obviously, he, he's a manager who, who is, I think, highly revered in, in, in Germany, unless I'm, I'm, I'm wildly mistaken. He did bring home a World Cup trophy, but it did come with his frustrations. Obviously, he departed at the end of the European Championships this past summer. How do you assess the job he did? Before we dive into Hansi Flick, how do you assess the job that he did as the manager of the German national team? Yeah, it's, it's truly impossible because, I mean, he spent <laughs> over 15 years as the head coach. so you're you're undoubtedly going to have peaks and troughs in that time and like we saw like you said you know 2014 you win the world cup which is despite just how talented that squad is it's never a given and and how that can unify nation and kind of just put football on the map in in a country where it's the major sport by landslide just shows how important that victory was and how it kind of gave him a reputation that is just never going to be never going to be um um kind of completely destroyed regardless of how bad the 2018 and 2016 European championships and world cup were, but nevertheless, it, it feels kind of similar to what we're seeing with, with Sepp Ladder in a sense. I feel that like that's a good comparison. Do you see a man who kind of stayed on too long to see him go from the hero to the villain? And it's something that's inevitable when you see success. It's, it's something that once you're there, you, you want to maintain it for as long as possible. And, and, it's impossible from the inside to, to, to f- kind of find the right time to step away. And, and we definitely saw that with Yuri Lur. Yeah, at the end, he didn't really understand what the tactics were to suit this squad. He was kind of stuck between bringing in these old talent that were, that were part of his wins, but then also trying to 
put the hammer down and move to a new generation. So he simply wasn't the right man anymore to lead this nation in, into that new era, which it desperately needs with the amount of talent coming through and, and the exciting times ahead with Hansi Flick. Yeah, and let, let's speak about that new generation then, because uh, it really does feel like a changing of the guard, not just at the, the head coaching level, but as you mentioned, with all this, this young influx of talent that Germany is now starting to see make its way into, into the senior level team, into the 11. Um, some young players who have already established themselves on the scene, someone like Kai Havertz, who um, has, has not only recently, but compared to other players, in the German national team is relatively new to the, the international scene at a senior level. Also players like, like Florian Wirtz, who we've discussed, I think in the past, who is an exciting German prospect. There are a lot of players in this German player pool who are going to be making bigger waves on the international scene in the coming tournaments. And that comes with, as you mentioned, a new head coach in Hansi Flick. Now, when we discuss this, I think what makes this so fascinating is that Flicks Bayern versus Flicks Germany doesn't seem on the surface too different. And that's mainly just because the, the German squad that he's inheriting is over 50% Bayern players, at least the starting 11 anyway, in the form of Serge Gnabry, Thomas Müller, Leroy Sané, Memo Lawyer. But what are some of the differences that you've seen between Hansi Flick's Bayern and now Hansi Flick's Germany? More in a sense, what are some of the changes that he has made to better suit the international game, but also the somewhat new squad that he's inherited? Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty interesting question because it's also very hard to assess. Germany, of course, right. didn't have the hardest World Cup group in the, in the world. They had teams like Armenia, North Macedonia and Iceland team on the decline. So it wasn't exactly the, the barn buster start they needed to <laughs> overcome. And, and like you said, he's been able to rely on those Bayern players who really form the axiom of the side. You have in goal, you have Manuel Neuer at center back, you have Zula and midfield Kimmich in attack, you have Muller. So all across that side in your four main areas, you, you have a Bayern player, which he's been able to rely on across that, that those six titles that he won in the Bundesliga and, and internationally. So from that sense, he has the leadership there that can kind of seamlessly put down that Bayern blueprint that he got over so successfully. But then he's also been able to incorporate these, these other players, like, for example, Jonas Hofmann, who wasn't even, even a right back in, at Gladbach and still isn't a right back at Gladbach. But under Flick, he's been pretty much a revolution there. And he's allowed a guy like Kimmich to play in midfield and really did the best out of his quality. So what I think has been the biggest benefit with Flick is that, you know, even these players who play for Dortmund or play for Gladbach, they've kind of seen what Flick has done at Bayern. And, and there's just a, such a respect there for how he kind of revolutionized a side that was already winning success after success. And when you go into the national team and you already have full buy-in from all the players, that talent's more than enough to, to really set a signal and hopefully even do it as soon as World Cup 2022. And that's a really fascinating point because, uh, as, as you say, we don't, we don't know. This is a manager, Hansi Flick, who is taking over a national team in a nation where he had previously dominated the domestic team with Bayern Munich. We don't often see managers make that jump from the top of club football to the top of international football. It is a relatively rare transition for a manager to make. But how valuable do you think that's been for Flick specifically, not just having that reputation and having that resume, but also inheriting a national side where most of the talents are players in that league that he's just dominated. Is that where you can maybe attribute this success right off the bat? I know that you mentioned 
the World Cup qualifying group. I don't think Germany were shaking in their boots for really any of those matches. But even still, it's been an impressive start to life for Hansi Flick with this German national team. How much of that is the players immediately buying into a manager who they just witnessed firsthand dominate the league that most of them have been playing? Yeah, I think a ton of it, obviously, because, you know, all these players, even in Germany, Bayern is still the destination club, regardless of if you're at Dortmund, at Leverkusen, any of these top four. It's not like in the Premier League where you have Chelsea, City and United and you very rarely see any any moves between those clubs. I mean, Bayern is still taking the talent off these other top four Champions League contenders, whether you like it or not. So from that sense, there's there's a huge respect for Flick and, and there's a huge buy into his tactics. And then also from his personal motivations, as you said, we don't see it highly very often that that managers move into the international game. And, and when we do, they're quick to also go back into the domestic game when right. the opportunity arises. But I think that what's what's so enticing about this Germany opportunity is that, I mean, the country is really at its lowest point soccer wise since the 2004 Euros when they went on the group stage. So that's a huge opportunity. But unlike that event, you, you have a really young roster full of talent. So it's not down to the personnel that that the country is at such a low point and 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 there's so much raw material here to make a to make a side that can definitely compete right now. Even I mean, we see it already with with probably some of the young talent we're gonna get into later. But there's so much young talent and and even some some veterans who guys like Kimish and, and Serge Nabry who are, are 25 and 26. So guys that we have kind of been around the block almost at this point, but are still yet to even hit their prime in their career. So yeah, there's so much so much good building blocks here that can that can make the Germany national team a real powerhouse again. And I think what makes this so interesting from my perspective is we, when we're this far out from the start of a World Cup, right, we're still a, a bit over a year from kickoff in Qatar in November 2022. We, we can, and I'll use the USA as a reference point, the, the USA side that we, Lord willing, we'll see in the World Cup in 2022. Because unlike, unlike Germany, we can't bank on that. We, we need to, to, qualifying means something for us. We can't just assume that we'll make it there. We've got to get to the process. Lord willing, if the USA is kicking off at the World Cup in 2022, that side could look very different to the one that we see now in terms of, of the shape and the players. A player who we'll get into in a little bit later is Joe Scali at your Bruce Munch and Gladbeck, who I really, really want to pick your brain on. Um, but even others, Caden Clark is somebody that, that we've discussed. Giovanni Reina is a player who's been injured. We haven't seen him much, but he, you would assume, will be in this team um, once that World Cup begins. That USA side could look very, very different. I'm trying to rack my brain and figure out how this Germany team could theoretically change between now and then. And I can't really think of anything, aside from maybe some young starlet like Florian Wirtz forcing his way into the eleven. I mean, could we theoretically already be looking at, at what Germany will look and play like come that World Cup in 2022? How much do you think will actually change in the next 12 plus months? Yeah, I think that a big portion of this is this continuity because you don't want to make right. any drastic changes to the squad in, in such a short space of time. I mean, you saw that with, with Yogi Lu going into the Euros, recalling Mats Hummels and Thomas Müller so close to the deadline. And obviously those are fantastic players that you want in your squad, but it kind of, regardless of how big of a reputation and leadership role they have, it, it does kind of kick, kind of kill the chemistry a bit. If, if players that were previously almost guaranteed to start a role are then completely pushed down on the pecking order, you're, you're going to inevitably get that kind of 
us against them mentality in the squad, which right. you're unable to change. But I think that what you are going to see is, is some of these young talent progress even further and potentially move up the pecking order in a substitute role. A guy like Karim Adeyemi, for example, if he's now playing for Dortmund at the beginning of next season and banging goals in the Bundesliga, well, that's very different than, than playing in Erby Salzburg and now and then showing up in the Champions League. You know, that's now a real, a real sign of a player that can, that can already provide in the Champions League scene. So I think that perhaps the one position you could still see up for grabs is that center forward role. I think that Werner is, is still underrated in the English media. He's obviously not a prolific goal scorer, but a lot of his movements, specifically his runs in the channel, they, they drag center backs out of position. They open up space and room for, for other players that utilize. So I think that Hansi Flick definitely sees that and, and still has a big role for him in this side. But I think it would be hard to look past a Karim Adeyemi that's firing on a similar similar rate to an Erling Holland for Dortmund next season right. as, as a player that really needs to at least play a sub, substantial role for, for them going into Qatar 2022. And then finally, before we move on, I think that also in that attacking midfield role, I mean, were it not for Thomas Muller and, and his inevitable ability to get 30 assists every season, <laughs> having, having a guy like Florian Wirtz as your starting attacking midfielder at just 19 years old is, is something that pretty much every, every side, but two or three in the world would probably be, be snatching that. I mean, that's, that's a really generational talent and, and someone that will probably not be in the Bundesliga for much longer if he doesn't go to Bayern. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I know Thomas Muller is, is an interesting name in this team, because like you say, I mean, he, there was a brief point where, where he and Hummels were not playing in this German side. But, but Muller, Muller particularly has seen his form just do a complete 180. And like you say, I mean, this guy is, is the assist king in Europe, and it seems like he's going to be playing football until he's 50. Obviously, that's not going to be the case, but um, they seem to be fairly comfortable in, in who comes in to replace him once that day inevitably comes. Um, speaking of Flick and speaking of the club that he replaced or that, that he departed, the next domino in that pecking order was Eby Leipzig, Julian Nagelsmann, packing his bags, dropping them down in Munich, a move that had me particularly salty because I thought that Nagelsmann might be a candidate for the Spurs job. He ended up taking the much, the objectively much more attractive Bayern job. Um, and I think what appeals to me the most about this uh, Julian Nagelsmann's form of Bayern, and I want to get your thoughts on this more really than anything else because I wanted, I, I, I'm so fascinated by a figure like Julian Nagelsmann, is a lot of times we'll see a manager pick up, move somebody else, and he'll change his team based on his own personal tactics. He'll have his idea in mind of how he wants to play. He'll go to his new team, and he will construct them to play the way that he knows how to play. With Julian Nagelsmann, we've seen kind of the opposite. We've seen him leave Leipzig, join Bayern, and instead of changing his team to fit his tactics, he's changed his tactics to fit his team. Because what we're seeing Bayern do is not, at least shape-wise, is not much different than what we saw Bayern doing under Hansi Flick. Meanwhile, Leipzig's Nagelsmann and Bayern's Nagelsmann, different shape, different utilization of players in different, in different situations. It does not look very similar. I mean, what does, first of all, do you agree? And second of all, what does that say about Julian Nagelsmann as a, as a pure tactician, somebody who can get results by playing in a multitude of different ways? Yeah, I think that you're spot on there. I think that something to note is also you can kind of compare that to when Pep Guardiola came into the lead a couple right. of years ago. His his first thought was to put Frank Ribery into that Lionel Messi role, play him as a false nine. He's obviously 
got the technical prowess to do that. But once he kind of got the grips of the Bundesliga, how high pressing every side is, how, how energetic they are, he also saw then the power of using a Mario Mandzukic, using a Robert Lewandowski when he finally came in, and kind of the the ideal of having a true center forward in your squad. So like Laden, like Nagelsmann in that sense, he's kind of adapted to the personnel available. And 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 that step from Leipzig to Bayern, although Leipzig finished second last season, that's still a gigantic step. If you just look at the player personnel there, how how experienced, how how many titles these players have won. You know, this isn't this isn't a young squad when you compare it to every Leipzig where players are going to immediately buy into you and, and, and follow your every word. These are guys that have been coached by some of the best in the game, have already won almost everything. So he had big shoes to fill in Hansi Flick and he did already need to right away put his status down. And, and I think he did that with some of his tactics. I think there has been some changes though. I think if you look at a guy like um, Alfonso Davies, he's taken massive steps this season. And a big part of that is because Julian Nottesman is pushing him a bit higher up the field. He's, he's, building up in more free two shape where he has the right back tucking in to form a back free two defensive midfielders. And that's really allowed a, a guy like Alfonso Davies to fly up and down the pitch and, and have some of his defensive de- um, deficiencies be a bit more hidden behind that, that solid back line. And then finally, I think that another point to, to touch on here is that Byron were really success, um, um, susceptible to, to counters last season. We saw right. in that PSG game in the champions league that, they push a lot of men forward and, and they don't always have the very fastest back line to, to really have the right um, antidote for some of these fast breaks. I mean, if you look at a guy like Killian Mbappe, not a lot of sides do, but then you also need to have a better, a better um, defensive plan to kind of counteract those strengths. And under Nazman, we've seen that he's, he's not making as many pressures as, as Hansi Flick, but he's doing it higher up the pitch in the final third. And I mean, on the one hand, you're, you're kind of, locking teams into their own end you're forcing long balls which are obviously unpredictable but it's also kind of an attacking move because when you're when you're pressing the final third anytime you win possession there you right away have a chance on goal so there's a lot of there's a lot of positives to see in this Byron side so far and they're rightfully at the top of the lead again so far and all the all the already through after four matches to the next round in the Champions League yeah which is horrifying because that is not an easy Champions League group <laughs> either I mean this <laughs> This was not a cakewalk of a group that they were drawn. And we've yeah. spoken about it. I mean, as, as a Spurs fan, you must still be having nightmares of having Byron in your group. So I can imagine. <laughs> do, do you want to actually know what's what's even more disappointing about that? Is that that 7-2, 7-1, I think. Uh, I think 7-2. That match was literally played on my birthday. I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, Spurs-Byron kicking off. October 1st, 2019. I will never forget the day. It was one of the worst days of my entire life as a Spurs supporter. That being said... Uh, over the last handful of years, Bayern have played some of the most beautiful football, I think, in Europe, just in terms of how, how tactically flexible and versatile they are. A player that you mentioned, who I really want to circle back around on, is Alfonso Davies. Because a season ago, I mean, he, his form a season ago, compared to his form from Bayern's Champions League winning side in 2019-2020, when they were in Tottenham's group, it, it really was not night and day, but we saw Alfonso Davies take a bit of a step back. And I was due to, to a number of reasons, but this season we've seen that change. I mean, do you, how, how similar do you, do you see Alfonso Davies to the role of somebody like Angelino when, when Julian Nagelsmann was still managing at Leipzig? Because as you mentioned, we are seeing Davies. I mean, his, his greatest attribute is what he can do in attack is, is how he can get forward his, his blistering pace, his ability to, 
create problems 1v1. That's why, as we mentioned on the most recent Twitter spaces, we're seeing him used as a left wing in the Canadian national team because he just causes so many problems in those attacking positions. And that's a role similar to what Angelino has played under Nagelsmann since his move there from Manchester City. How similar for you are, are those two roles and are there any significant caveats? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It's also something I haven't necessarily thought about, but when you bring it up, it, it makes complete sense. You know, in, in Angelino, you have a you have a fullback who pushes extremely high up the pitch, and on the other side, in um, predominantly was Mutiele, a more a more defensive minded center back, right. right back. So someone that's really more focused on that defensive side of the field. But I think that the major difference between Alfonso Davies and and um, Angelino isn't necessarily the role, but just just the quality of the player. I think right. Angelino is extremely talented going forward, and and but specifically as a crosser, you know, he's a guy that can provide from from wide areas. Versus Alfonso Davies is is pr- so technical that he can often dribble infield and and allow for overlaps from a guy like Sane or or even just combine with a guy like Lewandowski. So he has a lot more attacking fundamentals in his game. A lot of different ways to hurt a side, which. Is, is something that we didn't necessarily see when he was playing back at Vancouver Whitecaps. I mean, obviously he was 16 years old, so it's it's quite obvious that we don't see the final package then. But in, in many respects, he was a player who showed all of his talents through raw pace, raw dynamism versus now. I mean, he's extremely technical and it just shows how a team like FC Bayern can, can mold these players. I mean, look at a guy like Kimmich as well, was playing second division football for until I believe he was 2021 and, and, he's probably at least in the top five CDMs in the world, at least. Yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, I, I think um, you can look at a player like Joshua Kimmich and, and draw him up as maybe, maybe uh, well, yeah, I agree. I don't want to make any, any, any controversial claims, but yes, uh, Kimmich is, I mean, uh, for, as, as somebody who came up through, through, as you said, second division football in his first few pl- uh, months or first couple of seasons in Bayern Munich as a right back, his transition to that holding midfield role has been so much fun to watch and he's thrived in it. And that's just part of what I think makes Bayern so much fun to watch is that tactical flexibility, their, their ability to adapt and be versatile in virtually every sense. And that comes with players who can thrive in multiple different positions. Kimik is one of them. Davies is another. I like what you say about comparing Davies to Angelino. Angelino, as you mentioned, a player with, much more final product, it seems, as well. More goal contributions, gets more involved in the penalty area. Well, maybe not in the penalty area, but in terms of goals and assists, and Stavie is more of a dribbler, more of a runner. Very much so. I just think it's an interesting comparison to draw, because Angelino at Leipzig was, I mean, he was a, a single, a one-man chaos agent, it seemed. Um, in, in, yeah, there, in was, there was a stretch there in, in early November or November, December last year when you could argue is probably the best left back in the world. I, and maybe it's right. just a, the lens coming out here, but... I mean, what he was doing even in their national scene was quite brilliant. And then, of course, he had a, had a slight injury, didn't necessarily come back into the form. So I think that Davies, it, the one thing you could definitively say is Davies is far more the, the finished product. He's far more reliable. Right. He doesn't have these dips in forms where on one weekend you see this 10 out of 10 game, the next you see a 4 out of 10. I think that Davies, despite his, his young age, is at the point where he's consistently giving you 8.5s out of 10 every week, regardless of it's Barcelona away or Bochum at home. Yeah, very much so. Um, so that, that's an interesting discussion about, about Nagosman and Bayern. We're going we're gonna to keep going down the ladder. We're going to keep going down this, this chain reaction because, I mean, I, I will be, I'll be, be fully transparent. I, 
Uh, obviously, this managerial turnover is a, a big story in the Bundesliga this season, and particularly over the summer. I did not realize just how many steps there were in this, this chain until I went and I, I dived a bit deeper yesterday and today. Um, we're going to discuss now who, who came in to replace Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig. Of course, Nagelsmann Flick replaced Joachim Love and Nagelsmann replaced Flick. And Jesse Marsh, the American, former RB Salzburg manager, has replaced Nagelsmann at Leipzig. Um, the big thing I want to tackle with you on, on this front is... We obviously know Marsh as he's a, a knowledgeable guy. I think we over here on the other side of the Atlantic might view him a bit more uh, rose colored than maybe some, some European viewers. Um, but he is a, a, a smart football slash soccer mind. We've seen that since he was here in MLS at New York Red Bulls. He's dealing with a Leipzig side now that not only have a new manager, but also are dealing with, with new pieces that are taking on massively important roles, particularly Andre Silva and Mohamed Simikan, who are two players who have come in in the summer window. We've seen them take on uh, pretty significant minutes, particularly Andre Silva. Um, and the start has been a bit rocky. It's been a bit up and down. They've gotten some, some, some poor results that they really shouldn't have gotten. How much of that do you draw up to Marsh's transition? Maybe he's just not that, that good versus them just getting unlucky because they've had matches, particularly, I believe their opener came against Mainz, so a well, 1-0 loss where they, they, they on unexpected goals, it was like 3.7 to 1. I mean, it was just unlucky. They, they, they just couldn't find the back of the net. How concerned are you about this version of Leipzig? Because it has been up and down. The pieces are there. It's just taking a bit longer to put it together than maybe we thought it would have. Yeah, I think, I think regarding most of the people you're going to talk to about this topic, I'll probably be one of those that are that are least concerned because I think that that, like you said, a lot of the stuff that Jesse Marsh is is doing throughout games, you're consistently seeing that the elements he's trying to implement, they're all there. It's just routinely getting these on the field and eliminating the individual errors that that cost you. I mean, we see like that example with the Mainz game, Nordi Mutiele, just a wild swing at the ball, misses, gives away a goal. Like these are the things that that no matter who you have on the sideline, you can't go in the player's mind and and make all the decisions for them. Or go back to the Champions League against PSG. These top sides that every individual error is going to cost you. And and when a guy like Tyler Adams plays a back pass into the feet of Lionel Messi, that's going to end up in a goal. And and these are just things that, regardless of who you have in the manager role, these things cost you in these big matches. And ultimately is, is that next step that Leipzig needs to take as a, as a young squad and a, and a club which is inexperienced at the highest level. And we also mentioned, of course, that that transition from Nagelsmann filling the boots of Hansi Flick. Well, in a sense, I feel like Jesse Marsh coming in for Nagelsmann is even a bigger ass because right. Marsh, is, Marsh is a manager who has no experience in the Bundesliga. I mean, he was the, he was the, ham, the co-trainer for, for Leipzig a couple of years ago, but I don't think that's really going to give him a big reputation in any locker room. And I think that we, we've seen so far that he tried at the beginning to, to go full Red Bulls Altsburg style. So complete counter-pressing, eliminating possession passages. And I think that we see in this squad that there, there are the elements that can play a possession-heavy style. Guys like Stefan, um, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Christopher Nkunku or Danny Olmo, guys that were actually brought in during Nagelsmann's era to really be these possession-heavy pieces. And, and I think that what's now been better in the past few games and where Leipzig have now begun to pick up points, I mean, they're only one point off fourth spot despite 
what's been a beginning to the season, right. as many have said, has, has been amongst the worst out of these new managers, is kind of finding the right balance between his own tactics and also what worked under Nagelsmann. So, I mean, once again, kind of putting it back to the Hansi Flick example at Bayern, where Nagelsmann has brought in kind of the best elements of Flick and then put his own little spices here and there. Jesse Marsh, after a bit of a growing in period, has begun to do that as well. So he began the season with a four at the back. He's now switched that to this three at the back, which, as you mentioned before, suits a guy like Angelino much better because he isn't necessarily the defensive fullback. And then it's also allowed guys like Christopher and Kunku, Emil Forsberg, to operate in these in these wide or excuse me, not wide, these half space wing positions. So you're basically playing this free four two one, and that's really good for a guy like Kunku because. He has so much pace and explosiveness that playing him through the center doesn't necessarily allow him to really get to these top speeds. But playing him on the wings also means that he isn't necessarily getting to these central positions enough where he can play those through balls in behind and really be that link-up man, which has seen him get, I believe he has the the most assists in the Bundesliga is right up there amongst, amongst the very best. So yeah, he's definitely a talented player to watch out for and quite a shame that he wasn't in the latest French squad. And then, of course, touch on Andre Silva as well, as you mentioned before. He's been one that that struggled a bit in, in, in the opening few games. He, of course, had 25-plus uh, goals for Eintracht Frankfurt. So were not for Erling Holland and Lewandowski just playing in a league of their own. He could have well been the Golden Boot winner last season. And he, he's, like I said, he struggled at RB Leipzig. He hasn't really found that final touch that he had at Frankfurt. The game doesn't flow through him as much because it's obviously a higher level where the, he's not exactly the star man anymore. He's just one amongst many. And so Jesse Marshall's also found success going to more of a traditional hold-up center forward in Yusuf Polzin, who can bring in those attacking right. elements like in Kunku and Forsberg and then really get the best out of the rest of the squad versus Andre Silva's more of a traditional center forward who's just there in the box to convert. And that, that's a really fascinating point that you bring up because I did I did want to jump on that before we quickly pivot to this this. Second domino chain, which is the Dortmund, Gladbach, Frankfurt, Wolfsburg chain. But you you speak about Andre Silva and how his his poor form since his move has really been undeniable. As you mentioned, it's, it's been a far cry from from when he was banging in goal after goal with Frankfurt. What in your mind is Jesse Marsh's best attacking three, attacking four, depending on on what shape he uses? Because I think the obvious answer, and you mentioned him a few times, and I, I wholeheartedly agree is a player like Christopher Nkunku, who we've seen in, in spurts prior to this season, some spurts much longer than others, but this season he's really been that, that classy attacking player who Nagelsmann can consistently rely on. But at his disposal, he's also got a player like Danny Omo. He's got a player like Dominic Sobitzlai, who we've, we've yet to mention. He's got pieces at his disposal, but it seems like it's been a bit patchwork recently in terms of him trying to figure out what what that best attacking group looks like, and particularly the battle between Andre Silva and a maybe a lesser all-around striker in terms of finding the back of the net, but maybe a striker who fits this side of it better in Yusuf Poulsen. So what, in your mind, is, is Julian Nagelsmann's best attacking group going forward? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question. It also shows the squad depth in this life. Right. I, I said it at the beginning of the season, but I think it's not Byron who has the, has the deepest squad. It's Leipzig. Uh, Byron has by far the best 11. But, you know, when you look at this Leipzig squad with just the attacking num- talent, like Nkunku, Danny Olmo, Dominic Schoboslai, Emil Forsberg, Andre Silva, Polzin, Broby, you know, these are all guys that, that could 
get at least 10 plus goals and assists in, in the Bundesliga. And some of them aren't even getting a look in so far. So it just shows you what's available. And I think that Jesse Marsh has to use all of that to his disposal. He shouldn't necessarily say, these are my front three and, and everybody else needs to sit on the bench until one of them messes up and gets an opportunity because there's just so many guys there that can fit certain situations. And you see a guy like Shoba's life, for example, who's been coming off the bench a lot, but it's exactly what this team needs in the final 30 minutes. And they're perhaps chasing a goal. He's someone that is maybe going to give the ball away a bit more than someone like Forsberg, but he's also going to go for the risky pass, go for the finish when others would have, would have gone for the simple ball. So he's someone that will take the risks in the final third and, and is really someone that, that can kind of make or break those final last few minutes and, and make the difference. But I think out of everybody we mentioned, the one who, who really does have a starting spot would be Christopher Nkunku. He's, he's been exceptional this season, arguably one of the best attackers in the Bundesliga. I mean, that, that win over Dortmund last, last um, Saturday showed it once again under, under Jesse Marsh. He's really been, been the lively part and he's someone that Leipzig will be hoping to hold on to beyond the summer, but there's definitely a lot of interest from, from overseas. And if he does end up getting a French national team cap, I think that that would just seem skyrocket even further. And he could be the next to depart from Leipzig in a, in a growing list that includes guys like Werner and, and beyond. Yeah, I, I think at this point, it's really, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when with Christopher Nkunku and consistent places in the French national team, just form-based. He's been absolutely fantastic. Um, interesting storyline to watch going forward. Of course, uh, another step in that that Red Bull chain, Jesse Marsh from Red Bulls to Salzburg to Leipzig. I agree with you. I'm not wholly concerned just yet because there are so many moving pieces still. We'll see how it progresses as, uh, as the season goes forward. Um, you know, what's funny about this is we spoke prior to the recording that we were going to shoot for 30 to 40 minutes. We're going on 45 now. I have no intention of stopping because this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, let's dive into the, the domino chain that includes your Borussia Mönchengladbach. But we'll start with the man who, who left your club in Marco Rosa, who moved to Bay- uh, Borussia Dortmund. Of course, that was... Uh, a saga that was well-documented and not kept as much of a secret uh, when that move uh, was firmly finalized. He's been riddled with injuries at this Dortmund side. Of course, the massive one being Erling Holland over the last couple of weeks, but he has been somewhat shortchanged in terms of who he's had available to him, just six points through four matches in the Champions League group stage, thanks to two batterings at the hands of Ajax. Um, how did, just first and foremost, how do you rate the job that he's done at Borussia Dortmund? Because I know that the exit from Borussia Mönchengladbach was a bit bitter, um, but that that's tenure at Dortmund has not gotten off super, super fantastically either. How do you rate the job he's done at, uh, at, at Borussia Dortmund? Yeah, Marco Rosa, he who must not be named. That's kind of <laughs> from, the, from the Gladbach perspective. And I think, like you said, with injuries, it's near on impossible to give this a true grade. I think that what we're seeing is that he's not really had the personnel available to really implement implement his main ideas. And nevertheless, though, it, it does feel like he hasn't taken his side forward at all just yet. You still see this team really relying on Erling Holland for his goals. Right. I mean, a guy like Daniel Malin, who's come in and, and he hasn't played any role whatsoever in, in terms of goals or assists. He's been anything but a sensational Jaden Sancho replacement. And I think the big part of that is also because when you play him alongside a guy like Erling Holland, 
I mean, every ball is going to the Norwegian striker. You're, right. you're not playing through Molland. And regardless of, of the fact that he came in as the Sancho placement, he is a center forward at the end of the day, Molland. So he does need that service. And if you have such a Holland reliance, he's obviously just going to play second fiddle. And that's not what he was used to at PSV. And then I think the final point just to touch on with, with Rosa is he's still losing the matches that that guys like Favre, guys like Bosch, guys like Edin Terzic were, were also losing, you know, uh, against against Bayern, of course, in the Super Cup. They're, they're not able to overcome Nagelsmann in his first few games. In the Champions League, just, just really poor outings against Ajax, especially the, the first one. I mean, the second one that red carded, it's kind of hard to, to assess that because they played with 10 men for over an hour. But the first one, I mean, it's just unacceptable, regardless of the fact right. that some players didn't have a very good match. And then, of course, even even ones against against Freiburg, you know, these these typical matches that a team like Bayern just doesn't lose. They they find a way to win regardless. And 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 Dortmund still just drop points in these needless areas. So I think that that Marco Rosa obviously deserves time. He's, he's a manager that is a perfect fit, actually, from a tactical sense of Dortmund. But he hasn't necessarily shown that he's the man that can change these weaknesses just yet. And and I think that although it might sound, might sound controversial, if Dortmund truly wants to battle with Bayern for the title, they, they do need to get rid of Holland that summer because it's just the amount of money you would get for him would, would allow you to strengthen so many other areas. And even with Lewandowski at Bayern, they, they aren't entirely relying on him for goals. You know, a guy like Leroy Zane is pitching in, Thomas Muller is consistently getting 20-plus goals and assists this season. Versus a Dortmund, you still feel that beyond Marco Rose, beyond Holland, there isn't someone that can take over that goal-scoring mantle. And kind of using that money wisely across a, a variety of positions is something that could finally see them challenge Bayern for, for the first time in, one could say, at least a decade. And that's a really fascinating point. And I know you, you say it's controversial. I don't even wholly disagree with you because... Uh, particularly, maybe for another club that doesn't recruit or develop young talent as well as Borussia Dortmund, that that recipe would be a recipe of disaster, selling your best player, the one who you should be building around. But Borussia Dortmund are a club that that are are so skilled at, at uncovering the young talent and then finding it and then developing it into a, a really, really solid piece. I mean, we saw it uh, similarly with 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 Liverpool, right? When uh, when they they sold Philip Coutinho to Barcelona, everybody's all up in arms. But they used that money, among other money, to go out and to buy uh, 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 not Mohamed Salah, excuse me, Virgil Van Dijk and and Allison, and they go and they only go in and they win the Champions League. So we do see clubs that that take that maybe on the surface backwards approach by selling their most talented, most skilled player and using that money to reinvest really, really smartly. And I think particularly with Borussia Dortmund, I mean, we knew when he moved from RB Salzburg to, to Borussia Dortmund, we knew he was not going to be at Dortmund for much longer than, than three or four seasons. Dortmund is, is a fantastic club. It's, it's a wonderful club at developing young talent. But unless your name is Marco Royce, it's not a lifer club for the most part, at least in today's state of European football. Um and so I, I don't even hate that that take of using the Holland money to reinvest and to to build a really, really strong team across all areas of the pitch. But you make a really a uh, fascinating point, which which goes back even well prior to Marco Rosa, which is the matches that they're losing under him 
are the same matches that they were losing under Favre, under Terzic, uh, under, under all of those managers. That, to me, suggests that it's more than just a Marco Rosa issue. It suggests that it's a deeper thing embedded within the club. Maybe it's a, it's a mentality shift or something. What, to you, what, what does that point to? Because you mentioned matches that, that they're losing, that they should be winning, that Bayern have no issue with trotting out a weekend 11 and still coming out with 4-1, 5-1 victories. What, what is that? Because that's not the manager in that sense. If it's been dating back the last three or four tenures, it's something deeper, is it not? Yeah, well, and you're, you're asking the question, which has stumped <laughs> all of German football for the last five years. I think that that this is something that we're just not going to get an answer to today. And, right. and, and I, I and pretty much everybody surrounding in the Dortmund team and squad and management, they're all looking for that, that magic pill that's <laughs> going to change it all. You know, you saw a couple of years back when you bring, bring back a guy like Mats Hummels, for example, right. experience that Bayern won tons of titles. And even that is, has yet to, to kind of push Dortmund to that next step where they're not dropping points in needless positions. You see it in, in simple things like just last minute set piece goals, things that Byron just doesn't concede. It's just about saying switched on, following your marker, just, just see out those last few minutes. And it's something that Dortmund has yet to find a switch with regardless of who wears that Jersey. So yeah, no answer from me today for that, <laughs> but, but, and as a Gladbach fan, I'm not exactly hoping it's going to change anytime soon. Right. So long may continue. Yeah, feels like a feels like a question that that we may we may never have an answer to. It. Who knows? We may never have an answer to uh, to that. Um, but it, it, it's bizarre because it's not like Borussia Dortmund have, have never won the Bundesliga. They've won the Bundesliga relatively recently. It's not. It's it's something that's new. This this new adaptation to I guess being second fiddle to buyer. I don't know what it is, but it's it's something that apparently has stumped everybody. Um, Let's get to it now, because I know I know this is the one that, that among others, you, you'd like to dive into. And so I'm going to just give you the floor um, to talk about, uh, I don't want to butcher the pronunciation, but Adi Hooter at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Was I close? Was I off? How was that? That was pretty good, I must say. So I'll, I'll get right into it then. Dive in. For example, Adi Hooter, he was, of course, part of this managerial carousel. It came from Frankfurt, who aren't doing too well themselves. We'll obviously get on that later. <laughs> But just like how we, how we said that um, Marco Rosa is probably the ideal solution for Dortmund, Hutter in many senses is also an, a, a pretty prime candidate at Gladbach. You know, he has that backstory with um, the Salzburg. He was in Young Boys Bern in Switzerland who also play a very attacking football. So he's someone that, that and of course at Frankfurt, so he knows his way around the Bundesliga. So he's someone that definitely can, can kind of take over at Gladbach and proceed to to continue the blueprint that Rosa set down because obviously it wasn't Gladbach's decision to let Rosa go. It was something that they obviously wanted to continue with, but he had a buyout clause. It was the only reason they could even get him from Salzburg in the first place. Cause as we're seeing in this modern era, it's it, it, trainers and coaches, they're just as, just as, um, as move heavy as players, you know, they're, they're just as worried about right. their own career and, and making the most out of the limited time as a player these days. So he ended up moving on to Dortmund and, and in came Adi Hutter. And it, it's been an interesting display so far. There's been some really, really positive results. I mean, anytime you beat Bayern 5-0, it should be like the best season in the world. But then there's also been stuff like that most recent draw away at Mainz, defeats to Union, 
um, a really scrappy win over Bochum and, and probably the cherry on the cake, those, those two defeats to Hertha and Altsport. Those are things that, that just show that this team, despite, you know, beating Dortmund, beating Bayern, they're just not at the stage yet where you can really rely on them to make the top four, that, to put enough consistent performances together to, to nail down one of those Champions League spots. And I mean, ultimately, Gladbach isn't a team that, that should always be competing for Europe. Uh, sporting director Mats Erbel, he says it pretty clearly, you know, financially, everything that you make from, from player sales is what goes into player transfers. It's not any other money. It's, it's, it's really a, a, a sustainable business model that Gladbach follows. And if that means that you don't make Europe, so be it. But it's not a team that's going to kind of go all out and then end up in a Schalke-like demise where you're playing now second division football because you're relying on those European incomes. So in a sense, that that's something that, is obviously allowing Lampa to continuously play in the Bundesliga versus probably less than two decades ago, they were consistently in a relegation fight. But on the other hand, it means that these young talents like Marcus Turam or in the past, Marco Royce or Andre Ter Stegen, they're, they're not going to stick around there for long. And, and something that is just part of the constant turnover. But if you're letting go of young talent a lot, then you also need to be recruiting. And I think that's something that Gladbach has done exceptionally well yet again. We'll obviously talk about Joe Scali in a bit because he's a player very close to your heart. But <laughs> guys like Luca Netz, who's, who's a huge talent in German football, came for just $4 million from Hertha BSC. And he's someone that Hertha fans are, were really banking on for the future. He's, he's a U19 fullback who's... I believe playing in the under 21s for Germany now, and is definitely kind of earmarked for that left back position in the full national team. So he's been an absolute coup, coup. and also Coadio Kone. He's someone that you may not know of just yet, but come back to this podcast in two or three years. And it feels like everybody will be an expert on him. The lights of Manchester United, AC Milan, they were all interested and it was ultimately Glup, but they just went in early in January, you know, made sure that deal came across and, He's been someone that's that's been a huge part of this uptick in form. I think alongside Dennis Zakaria, who's probably the, the star player in this team, it's just one of the most progressive midfields in the division. And there's so much power in that side from, from the deep midfield positions that I could still see them making at least Europa League, but they'll need to pick up these, these points against the smaller sides, which have been quite a struggle so far. And that's what makes it such an intriguing conversation is I remember at a time not too long ago when Borussia Mönchengladbach were fighting with Bayer Leverkusen for the fourth place in the, in, in the top four, the, the post-lockdown uh, season, when, when that came down to match day 30, 33, match day 34. I'm trying to do my, my quick math for an 18-squad league. But, um, but still, I mean, this is uh, what, what, what really not, not confuses me, but what I want to, to – circle back on because you did mention it is this is a, a Borussia Mönchengladbach side who as you mentioned prioritize player sales to generate revenue and that is really a a, a respectable form of, of business because we see so often these massive influx of, of cash or, or, or money coming out of a, a personal pocket to, to go out and buy a player um but that's not always the case, particularly in, in German football, but specifically, as you mentioned, with Borussia Mönchengladbach. But this is a team that not long ago was in a Champions League round of 16, competing against, against Manchester City. The team is not super different. I mean, I mean, a lot of the players in that team are ones that we still see in the team now. Is that something that, that comes down to managerial turnover? Or is it something that, that comes down to, 
I mean, this is a, a relatively banged up Mönchengladbach side. Rami Bensabaini has missed time. The player you mentioned, Marcus Turam, has missed time this season. Um, and they are down, I believe, ninth or 10th in, in Bundesliga, obviously not where they belong and not where they'll finish. But what does that come down to for you, that, that kind of dip in form? Is it an injuries thing? Is it a, a managerial turnover thing? Is it, where, where does that stem from? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So first and foremost, the, the main aspect that I'd like to touch on is you obviously mentioned, you know, they made it to the, to the knockout stage in the Champions League last season. They beat Shakhtar home and away. They beat Inter Milan. They cut it very close to Dempsey Real Madrid two times, even to the draw off of them. So, I mean, that kind of shows the, the level that they're able to play at. But then on the other hand, they finished eighth in the Bundesliga. So right. they're also, again, like this season, picking up points against these top sides, showing their quality in, in certain occasions. But then also against these, these smaller sides where, you know, it's a tough ground to go to. But if you're, the, if you're the superior team, you need to pick up these points. They failed to do so. And, and similarly, how we mentioned with Dortmund, just silly decisions in the final minutes of matches really cost them last season. And, and it's part of the reason why Marco Rosa also left with such a tarnished legacy. Because at one point, I believe they were in, they were in third place with about 10 matches left. And then they drop all the way down to, to eighth and not even make any European football. Even if you say we don't need to rely on European incomes, it's still a disaster. And a fan like me who would have been looking forward to some Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday nights this year is now sitting at home and watching Bayer Leverkusen on the TV. So yeah, it's quite a disappointment in that sense. And and um, just before you touch on, uh, I just want to mention those injuries because yeah, I mean it, it's it's like Dolman. It's it's a huge thing that has, has impacted them this season. Guys like Briel Embolo, who is really in the right. form of his life, him falling out of injury again is just a real disaster. And it's something that I think even if you're not a Gladbach fan, you just got to feel bad for that guy because I mean he's he's so talented. Whenever he's got a couple of games behind his belt, and then just to see him go down again with well, looks like another lengthy muscle injury is just something that nobody wants to see. Yeah, and it seems like it's kind of a, a common trend within the Bundesliga as a whole is, is sides that are that are banged up and dealing with injury. I don't know what it is, but I feel like there's there's two or three teams already that we've discussed and we've asked, oh, well, how much do injuries play a role? And it always plays a big role, but um, I don't know what it is about this season specifically. I do, I do want to ask you, you, you read my mind. I do want to ask you about Joe Scali, not just because he is an American product, but, but more objectively because he is, you can argue, arguably the biggest winner in this Adi Hutter appointment because he's received such a massive role in this Mönchengladbach 11, 11 matches, 11 starts, 10.9, uh, 90s. I mean, he has really been about as integral as they come in terms of, of consistent playing time. For somebody who, truthfully, not many Americans in general had heard of prior to to this summer and to the start of this Bundesliga season. So, I mean, how 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 much of a benefit has Hooter's appointment been to someone like Joe Scally, young wide defender who's seen in just three three and a half months has really blossomed into a fine player. Yeah, it's been a huge benefit and, and just a stat to throw out there. No U21 footballer in any of Europe's top five leads has played more games than Joe Scali this season. Right. So he's definitely reaping the rewards. And I think that, that of course, Hütter has been a major benefactor for him. But we also need to look at the fact that Stefan Leiner has, has been out right. for much of the season with an injury. So he's also gotten the opportunities. But I think his biggest aspect playing in his favor is just his versatility. He can play right back. He can play left back. He's hugely two-footed. He's able to kind of 
move up and down the pitch. I mean, the fact that he's, he's so young and able to play, what is that, 10.9 uh, 90s already this season? I mean, regardless of how talented you are, there's there's still an aspect of kind of adapting to the professional game, particularly a top five lead like the Bundesliga, being able to kind of consistently go without injury over and over again, not to mention the cup fixtures and everything else that comes in. That That's truly remarkable, one must say, because even a guy like Kouadio Kone, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he's hugely talented, but he's regularly getting subbed off at the 60th minute because he's just too young and, and too inexperienced to go the full 90 yet. So it, it shows how far along Joe Scali is, and I believe he's still 18 years old. So, yeah, definitely a huge talent one to look out for. And, and talk to me about Kone a little bit. I want to give you a chance to plug it because admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about, about Kone, but uh, he seems to be a player that you're very, very high on so much so as to say, come back in three years when he's a, a starlet in the German game and maybe at a European giant. Um, I, I do want to give you a chance to go ahead and plug that so you can sound like a genius when people come back here in 24 months and they can say, oh, shoot, Adam called it back in 2021. Who Who is this player who you're so high on? Yeah, I mean, he's... There was a time when when Gladbach was really disappointing this season. So I think after that Outsport game, it was personally, it felt like a huge low and, and you didn't even want to turn the TV on again. And then watching Kone the following game kind of brought it all back. That's kind of the highest praise I can give him. I mean, <laughs> he, he carries the ball just unbelievably well in midfield. I mean, is able to just kind of push the ball forward in with exceptional quality He's strong. He's got so much technical ability for a central midfielder. And he's also got this kind of free style of play that you don't often see in a lot of a lot of European players, particularly German ones. Because you see these players that grow up in these academy setups where there's a huge amount of tactical intelligence, huge amount of technical ability. But it almost feels like they're playing like robots on the pitch where every move is thought out and, and everything is coached. Versus Kone still brings this kind of freedom to his play and, and a street-like mentality which you can't really teach. It's, it's almost inherent. And there's just a creative ability within him that is remarkable when you see that he's predominantly a defensive midfielder. Yeah, I, uh, I, I have seen a bit of him. Obviously, I know that you are a player who, who probably watches him a bit more consistently than I do, um, but he does seem the exciting prospect. And I certainly hope that, that this episode can be plugged as a, a bit of a precursor, a, a, a crystal ball in a sense, if you will. Uh, when he's he's putting in 10 out of 10s in the Champions League semifinal. Um, let, let, let's jump ahead because uh, we've got we've got two more managerial switches to discuss. The next one is where Adi Hutter left, which is, as you mentioned, Eintracht Frankfurt. Hutter out, Olivia Glasner, uh, Oliver Glasner in. Um, and this is a Frankfurt side that maybe of the, the seven or eight that we're going to discuss is performing the the – worst we'll, we'll just call it what it is performing the worst um now obviously that comes with with some more turnover than just the man standing on the touchline this is obviously a side that was extremely dependent on Andre Silva who's since departed and they've obviously had struck they, they've had their struggles finding the back of the net um my big my big question here is what seems to be Glashner's plan to replace someone like Andre Silva because it's pretty clear that he hasn't found the answer yet and the obvious, I think that the easy cop-out answer would be Boré, the striker they brought in from, uh, from, from South America over the summer. But um, he's really been trying to utilize a number of players in terms of who's scored, right? We've seen Philip Kostic score his share of goals against Peter Hauga, who they've brought in from AC Milan. We've seen him score a handful of goals. 
Um, I, there have been poor regardless, but what seems to be Glashner's plan to replace a talismanic striker in Andre Silva? Yeah, I think that Frankfurt is, is a really difficult one to say because, as you said, they're 14th place. And a big caveat here is that they were, of course, playing, they were, of course, um, qualifying for the Europa League last season. So right. they've hit very far in the division. And they also now need to contend with those midweek matches, which on the one hand, you, you bring in extra exposure, you get a lot more revenue, but you also have very limited time on the training pitch to really implement your ideas. And that's something that's that's really bit Oliver Glasner on the back because you have a side that's struggling and then you're just bombarded with fixtures where you're never actually able to get out of the rut. You're just kind of moving along and hoping for the best. And I think that, that like you said there with um, Rafael Boré, he's a really talented player. He, he works extremely hard. But he ultimately isn't an Andre Silva. He doesn't have right. those, those clinical instincts. And 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 although he has kind of pitched in with some important goals of late, he scored a winner against Grota Fürth the other game week. He, he's just not going to be the guy that can score twenty five plus goals. Just ultimately, that's that's a world class level striker that you need to replace. And and there's some interesting components here. I really like the signing of um Jens Peter Hauger and uh, Jesper Lindstrom. Both mm-hmm. of those are really creative young players. But there almost feels like there's there's too many similar players in this squad. You already had a Daichi Tamada. You added that Lindstrom and Holga, even an Ami Yunus. These are all guys that really want the ball to their feet, like to dribble at men, and, and not guys that really are, are looking to get in behind defenses to, to kind of stretch opposition defenses and, and be the receiver of those, of those through balls. So you may have the guys that can pick those key passes, but you're not necessarily having the, the individuals who actually run onto those balls. And that's something that's kind of tarnished them this season. And then finally, I think it's, it's impossible not to touch on um, Philip Kostic because if you say Andre Silva was an important player, so was Philip Kostic and, and Frankfurt are completely relying on him. Even this season, he was obviously looking to push for a move to Lazio before the window shut. And, that ultimately fell through, but I mean, Frankfurt should be lucky that they still have him because I think over 75% of their tax go down the left flank. And it just shows how, how integral his crossing is to, to any success that Frankfurt might have. And without Andre Silva in the box to get on the end of those headers, it, it's, it's made the whole squad squad just weaker. And it's a reason why they're just three points ahead of the relegation zone right now. Yeah, you make some fantastic points. I think the biggest one that I want to circle back around on is, is how it does seem like uh, with Lindstrom, with Haga, with uh, you mentioned Daichi, uh, Daichi Kamada, who um, is a player who who I, I've been, you know, I, I plugged Japan as my as my national team on the rise. And uh, Kamada is a big part of that. But you are correct in saying that it's a lot of, of front end moves, not not back end move players, which is what Andre Silva was so good at. Right. With with latching onto those balls and, and among other things, finishing the chances. And Rafael Beret doesn't seem to be that kind of striker. I think he's got a bit of a bit, bit, bit of a longer leash, maybe just in the sense that there really is nobody who can come in and, and, and pluck his job from him right away. But um, it, it does seem like that production is not going to be even close to replicated from, from what they got from Andre Silva. So um, essentially uh, uh, what I want to know is what is what is that that missing piece? And I know we we've discussed the the uh, prototype, the the qualities, but does that that form come in the form of a player not named Andre Silva, obviously, because not going to go back and bring it back. But what who who is the the ideal player that you think Frankfurt uh, w- would make this Frankfurt work? Whether it's it's got anything to do with their likelihood of bringing them in or not, 
Um, like what, what is that player you have in your mind of who needs to come in and make this Glasner Frankfurt work with the players he's already got in this attack, which seems relatively one dimensional. Yeah. I think that you can look at it from, from two ways. Probably you either, you either need a striker who, like you said, is, is able to get on the end of crosses is able to hold up position, or you need a striker that, that can kind of make those runs in behind the line, which either stretches opposition defenses, takes center backs with and allows more space to drive into, or then is kind of that that um, man that can latch onto these through balls. I mean, Tamada, Hauda, Lindstrom, these are all guys that are capable of that pass. And then the other alternative you can go down is, you know, bolster that right side of the pitch. Just as we said before, right. they're very left heavy. And and I mean, in a sense, it's obviously great to have a player like Philip Kostic, who is, is far too good for a side sitting 14th in the table. But on the other hand, I mean, teams know how to deal with deal with a side where you can just lock them into one third of the pitch and you don't have a lot of other options. So although Eric Dorm on the other side is, is suitable defensively, bringing in a bit more of an attacking presence there will just allow them to, to kind of go for that switch of play to the wide open opposite flank and find a few more different ways of attacking on an opposition side and presenting more danger. Yeah, I feel like with, with with a lot of these that we've we've touched on, um, it, it seems like, and obviously you're going to expect some some growing pains with new managers and and particularly with the side like Frankfurt or Leipzig, uh, new players in new roles as well. But it seems like every club, for the most part, that we've discussed, aside from maybe Bayern and the German national team, uh, seem to be to be one or two pieces or players away. And Eintracht Frankfurt is uh, certainly in that mold. Not a club that you would expect to finish 14th in the Bundesliga, uh, but certainly a side that have not been playing much better than 14th uh, up to this point in the, the domestic calendar. So let's go to the, the final club that we're going to touch on is Wolfsburg, because that's where Glasner came from. Uh, and in his place now is Florian Kofeld from the now relegated uh, Werder Bremen. Um, I don't have, in truth, a whole lot to uh, to to touch on here, and and um, I, I misspoke. You, you are correct. There is a, a labor cruiser manager, um, but we'll we'll go direct first with with Kofeld to uh, to Wolfsburg. Um, I I have not seen a whole lot of Wolfsburg this season, um, but this is a side with a number of pieces, and they they have been getting results. This is a Champions League side. This season, they finished in the top four. They're in fourth place this season. Kofeld, uh, the last two years, has been in charge of a Werder Bremen side that um, obviously had had more structural issues. They have been relegated for the first time in the, the club's history in the Bundesliga. Um, I don't think that's something that can be pinned entirely on the shoulders of Florian Kofeld. But that move to Wolfsburg, how, how would you rate how it's been going so far? Yeah, I think that obviously must caveat this with the fact that Mark Van Bommel was the one that came in in the summer. But I mean, already right. gone the season, I think we can leave that one in the past because that wasn't suitable for either party. And in, in a sense, Kohlfeldt, I, I actually think it's a pretty exciting appointment, which you wouldn't think from from a manager that just got relegated. You know, I mean, take it to the Premier League example. If 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 Manchester United was now appointing Sam Allardyce, you wouldn't all be saying what a great <laughs> appointment, but in a sense, Kohlfeldt, regardless of the fact that, that Werder Bremen were very, very poor at the end, he is an attacking manager. I think in, in, in 2019, I believe, he was even voted the, the best manager in all of Germany, so beating out the likes of um, Thomas Tuchel, Jürgen Klopp to that award. And it kind of just shows how highly rated he is despite going down with Bremen. 
And then, like I said before, he is an attacking manager. He's someone that likes to be on the front foot. He didn't necessarily have the players to do that at Bremen. And it's also a reason why he ended up getting relegated because he was a bit too attacking in the end. But he's definitely someone that can kind of bring these elements to Wolfsburg, who all in all are a very defensive side. They, they've only conceded 12 goals this season. They had the um, most clean sheets two seasons ago. And under Olaf Glasner, really the typical scoreline was a 1-0 victory with with a goal from Wout Weghorst. So he's already kind of showing how he can make a couple of varieties in this side, bringing guys like Lucas Nemecha back to the fore, spreading goals around. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty excited to see where this experiment with Kohlfeldt could go. And from Wolfsburg being probably in the top two most boring sides in the division, it can really <laughs> only go up from here. Um, you mentioned a name that I want to circle back around on, and that's Wout Weghorst, uh, a player who I... I'm not, I'm not sure if you agree with this sentiment, but a player who I would be surprised, um, if not shocked, to see at Wolfsburg at the start of the 2022-2023 season. He's got some big European clubs circling around him. And this project so far, as you mentioned, has been working. They're sitting in the top four, are Wolfsburg. But do you do you have the confidence that that this is a project that, that um, Kofeld is putting in place that can survive without potentially a talismanic striker like Wout Weghorst? Or is this maybe a bit too reliant um, on, on that, that center forward who can consistently find the back of the net? You mentioned uh, Lucas Nemeka actually has more Bundesliga goals than, than Weghorst does right now, but I don't think it's a bold statement that Weghorst is the player that this Wolfsburg attack centers around. So do you have the confidence? I know this is an exciting appointment that you think, um, but do you have the confidence that this will continue this, this, to, to be successful even if Wout Weghorst does leave the club, whether it's in January or over the summer. Yeah, I think that you have to look at this from two perspectives. If, if Oliver Glasner was still in charge, then it would be a definitive no. I mean, Wout Weghorst <laughs> was for a long time the, the only attacking option there. He was the only one that could chip in with goals. But if you look at Florian Kofa now, he's been without Weghorst for, I believe, all but one of his matches in charge. And Lucas Nemecha has really picked up the slack. He's, he's someone that is that is far younger. Vaitors is, of course, 29 now. So you also need to look in a sense at how many more years are we actually going to get considerable money for him? I mean, if you look at a team like Spurs, who were linked in for a while, I don't know if Spurs are necessarily interested when Vaitors is now two or three years older. So I think that that also needs to be taken into account. And if you have a guy like Nemecha, who just recently was called up to the German national team, is, is a player who is the top scorer for the under-21s in, in their history. So he's someone that is definitely talented enough to take over the mantle, but you then need to, you need to change the style a bit. You can't play completely relying on crossing football and then just firing into his head because Mech is a player who's far more technical and likes to link up with players rather than just be the finishing product. Yeah, fair. And I, I do agree with you. I think uh, when, when you discuss Wolfsburg from a season ago, I mean, I... They, they, they gave off big, like, like for a fry, in, in, in the sense of, of low scoring, low conceding. They, they, they kind of fit that mold of a side that's going to get results. It reminds me a bit of, of uh, they've since been relegated, but Sheffield United, their first season up in the Premier League, they were very like, let's play for nil-nil, let's play for one-nil. And, and at the shutdown, they were fifth or sixth place in the Premier League, and they obviously finished seventh or eighth, and they were they finished dead bottom a season ago. But they kind of fit that mold last year of one that, that – had more staying power than a club like like Chef Yu, but but low scoring, low conceding, and that's how they they clinch a place in the top four. Um, 
So I agree. I agree with with that notion. And you make a good point. Um, I, I I didn't even have them on my radar because they weren't a part of this long, just domino effect, just one after the other after the other. It is a, a bit a bit lone standing. Um, but Peter Bosch has departed uh, Bayer Leverkusen for uh, for Lyon, and in his place is former Young Boys manager Gerardo Seyoani. He has come in place for 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 Bayer Leverkusen, and I think that the biggest thing with him that, that we can look at is the way that 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 two players have have seemed to to not so much take off as just just well one of them has taken off in the sense of of, of Florian Wirtz, but also Patrick Schick has seen his form uh, take a, a bit of a rise under this new manager. Um, just to get your general thoughts before we dive into the, this new Leverkusen project. Um, where, where, where do you stand on, on this appointment and how it's gone through these first three months? Yeah, I think it's definitely exciting. I think that Seawan is, is a manager who at Young Boys Baron even showed he's a guy that wants to play attacking football, wants to play that front-footed style that was at times incredible under Boss, but then was also really just susceptible to defensive transitions. And I think that that he has a squad that can allow him to do that. You mentioned Schick and um, Verts there, but let's also touch on guys like Musa Diaby, right. I mean, oddly, so much just explosive talent that is exactly what you want as a manager that wants to play front-footed football. And I think that that we saw it, especially earlier in the campaign, when going into that Bayern game, which we'll probably touch on in a bit, they were they were right on track and, and scoring the most goals they had in a, in a Bundesliga campaign in their history after, I believe, eight match days. But they've obviously dropped off a bit now, but they're still in pretty good shape. They're, they're only one point behind fourth place and at the top of their Europa League group. So there's a lot to be excited about here. And yeah, there's going to be quite a few young talents being sold for quite a profit in, in the coming seasons. Yeah, speaking of those young talents, there's two more that, uh, that, that I'd like to, to bring up. It, it is a relatively reconstructed defense, isn't it? I mean, obviously, uh, Jonathan Ta is still here in that defense, but we, uh, we see the additions of... Jeremy Frimpong, we see the additions of uh, of Odilon Kas- Kas- for the love of God, Kasanu. That name always that's, trips that's me. That's a tricky one. <laughs> it, it's just, it's, I don't know. I don't know why I have a problem with that name, but every time I'm about to say it, I need to collect myself and then say it. Regardless, uh, he's been very good. The defense as a whole has, has a, a handful of impressive pieces, and that seems to be what Leverkusen's been for a long, well, not for a long, long time, but for the past few seasons is another one of those clubs that's going to develop this young talent and then ship it off once it reaches a place where the European giants come circling. And a byproduct of that, and you mentioned that Bayern match, is we've seen more than a few times Leverkusen start a season very, very well, near or at the top of the table, and then things start to fall and then they slip. And, and this season, it seems to have taken a, been much quicker than in seasons past. They are already outside the top four again, but they were up at the top for a handful of weeks. That Bayern match specifically, that 5-1 defeat to Bayern Munich, is, is that something that, that knocks the confidence of a team like Leverkusen that are so dependent on their young players? They're still very moldable players. I mean, a Bayern loss is a Bayern loss, but 5-1, I mean, for, for a side that's competing at the time for the title in November, um, that, that has some staying power, doesn't it? That has the potential to, 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 to kind of seep its way in and, and initiate a bad run of form, although it is Bayern Munich, and particularly with this young Leverkusen side, does it not? Yeah, undoubtedly, and I think there's a reason why that they're nicknamed Neverkusen because <laughs> they haven't been able to kind of find that last inch that that's something that we also mentioned with Dortmund, that ability to just 
win win games in those crucial moments. And we saw it in the Bayern game. Those are just far more experienced veterans. They they understood how to approach that game and absolutely capitalize on on that that young squad in Leverkusen who weren't necessarily ready for for that opportunity. And, and we I think it's important that Leverkusen bounced back right away. They they took three points away from Betis in their Europa League group. So it didn't kind of seep in like it did under Boss's era. But nevertheless, I mean, they haven't won any of the last four Bundesliga matches. So they may not be title candidates anymore. I think that's that's fair to say. They're also out of the day of Babel Kyle, lost the second division Kyle's rule. But I think that anything less than a European place would be a disappointment when, as we say, you know, it's a young squad. But if we see the the individual levels that each of them are playing at, it's, it's impossible not to say that anything less than sixth place would be a disappointment. Well, that's the thing. And that, that's kind of where I want to jump in with you to wrap this whole conversation up and tie it up in a nice little bow is we've discussed a number of different names in, uh, in this, this episode that has gone on much longer than we anticipated it to, but I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, beginning with, of course, Hansi Flick and Tenaglesman, and then progressing into the Glashners, the Kofelts, the Seyoans, of all the managers that we discussed, and I'm going to take Nagelsmann and, and Hansi Flick and push them to the side because they are the, the clear answers. Which one of, of those five or six do you view with the most positive light? The one that you look at and you say, that's the one that I think will work best, that will, will pay off the most relative to what the club's expectations are. Hmm, I think that's a difficult one. I think that what we can already say is that Oliver Glasner is out of the equation. I think that, <laughs> no, why do you say that? Would be, that would be a very hot take. <laughs> I think that any of the other ones could, could be in there. For example, Adi Hutter, although he's furthest down in the table, he's also had the biggest highs. I mean, beating Bayern right. 5-0, taking points off Dortmund. Those are, those are really important moments that show you how, how, how top quality that side can be. And then, of course, you also have Leverkusen, on the other hand, were probably the most consistent, especially at the beginning with those victories. And then they also showed that if you just look at how he's kind of gotten into the heads of each of those young talents, just a caveat, you know, say is able to speak seven different languages. So how he's able to relate to pretty much every single person on that squad on an individual basis also shows that that's a guy that can be there for quite a while and and really form this this club in his in his idea. But I think I would ultimately go for for Jesse Marsh at Leipzig. Perhaps it's it's a bit of an American bias knowing that <laughs> that Will's on the show here and don't want to yeah, get kicked out so late on. But <laughs> I think that I think that what you see there is he's starting to find the right balance between his own ideas and Nagelsmann's ideas. And it's also exactly what we said about, about Nagelsmann at Bayern, why he's been so successful is because he's found that just the perfect balance between keeping what Hansi Flick's done so well and also implementing his changes to take the squad to the next level. And Jesse Marsh is obviously not there yet, but he's he's furthest along from any of the managers that I see so far. I, perhaps Kohlfeld could be, but it's just too soon. I mean, after four matches, you can't put a manager in there. And I, and I think that Leipzig, although they've had some really poor results, the Champions League has been underwhelming. Although, I mean, if you look at the underlying numbers, they deserve far more than just one point. He's just one point away from fourth spot in the Bundesliga to just beat Dortmund. So there's a lot of positives going into these next round of fixtures. And I think that Jesse Marsh will still have a role to play in perhaps not this title challenge, but definitely the race for the champions and spots. 
Right. And I think what, what makes the, the Marsh selection so appealing is that he might be, out of all the, the managers that we've discussed, not named Nagelsmann or, or Hansi Flick, he might be the one who, whose team is the most complete in the sense that we know what this Leipzig side can do. We know how good that they are. Granted, this is a, a, a side that have not really been able to fully replace the goal scoring of Timo Werner. A season ago, they were one of the worst in terms of expected goals compared to actual goals, but they've brought in a striker who we know can score. It's just a matter of, of finding a way to get him to fit. And, and we dove into that uh, pretty thoroughly back in that segment. Um, but I don't have a whole lot of reservations that Andre Silva will not eventually find a place in this Leipzig squad. The same sentiment can be said for Mohamed Simikan, who truthfully has impressed me uh, for, so largely since, uh, since his move. Um, Dominic Sobislai is, is somebody who was starting early in the Bundesliga season. And as you mentioned, now is coming off the bench, but he's, he's putting in solid shifts. So I think that's what appeals to me the most about, about Marsh at Leipzig, American bias aside, is that he does have a, a squad that is nearly complete already that has challenged for, for, for uh, at times, challenged for, for Bundesliga titles. Not ever legitimately. I think that's something that Bayern has always had on lock, but um, they've at times, at many times, looked to be the closest challenger. To, uh, to, to threatening that, that Bayern run of form. Um, I am so glad that we had this conversation. I'm glad we finally had a chance to meet face-to-face, but I'm also glad that we had a chance to dive into this because we have not discussed a whole lot of Bundesliga on this podcast so far, but, uh, but it is such a fascinating league. German football is so, so much fun to discuss. And you are somebody who, who looks at German football almost religiously. I mean, you've got a lot of content on, on breaking the lines. You've got your own newsletter um, regarding German football. I want to give you a chance now to just go ahead and plug all of it. Where can we find you on Twitter? Where can we find your content? Uh, where can uh, where can the, the listeners come find you if they want to hear more? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for the plug. And I guess if any <laughs> listeners want to hear hear more about the German football in this podcast, make sure to get in Will's DMs. Because, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is an important topic that needs to be covered more often here. But, yeah, yeah. If you want to hold, hold me on this. If you want to read some more about German football, then make sure to um, subscribe to my newsletter. You can... Find that at the top of my Twitter bio. Hopefully that'll be that'll be um added here in the podcast description if Will doesn't do me dirty. But I think if you all <laughs> type in Adam Kahn in Twitter, you'll be able to find it relatively quickly, or just the German football newsletter newsletter on um substack.com. So that should pull it up relatively quickly. And otherwise, yeah, I'm in every Friday at um seven o'clock central European summertime. I'm live on the Breaking the Lines Twitter channel, always hosting a, a special podcasts or twitter spaces that goes into some exciting stuff surrounding not just german football but all types of different leads and international events so yeah you can find me anywhere anywhere you're looking for football content i'll be i'll be around the door somewhere i uh i I do have to go ahead and plug those twitter spaces a little bit extra a because they are a ton of fun to both listen to and take part in but also because We've got a bit of a, of, a, of a BTL Twitter Spaces derby coming up in the Champions League. That Barcelona-Benfica match that we tabbed as super, super important. It's fallen into place, and we know yep. I'm on the yep. Barcelona side, and, and you and Richard are on the Benfica side. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm kind of shaking in my boots a little bit. I'm not as confident as I once was. But, um, 
yes, go go ahead and uh, and and go and tune into those those BTL Twitter spaces. That's seven Central European summertime. If you're on the East Coast in the U.S., I don't know. I, truthfully, I don't know the demographics of who listens to this podcast. I, I, it could be a whole bunch of people on the East Coast. It could be a whole bunch of people in Europe. But if you live on the East Coast, that is one p.m. Eastern. Um, we learned the hard way because the first time that we did a, a Twitter spaces together was that transfer window summary and nobody had any idea when we were actually starting because it was people from all different time zones. Um, but they're always a good time. Adam Khan, thank you again so much for jumping on. We'll be sure to do this again soon. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that was my conversation with Adam. Once again, a thoroughly fascinating one. Uh, one that I definitely enjoyed having. Again, glad I got to, to meet Adam face-to-face. That was neat. We had chatted a couple times in the past. Glad that you all got to uh, to dive a bit more into his, his German football-centric mind as well. A lot of really, really intriguing nuggets to uh, to take in there. And really just as a whole, I mean, what, what a story it's been in the Bundesliga, this, this carousel of Bundesliga managers. I can't remember a time in which... Uh, one major domestic league, there was so much managerial turnover at the top because we're discussing Bayern, Dortmund, Leipzig, Wolfsburg, Mönchengladbach, Bayer Leverkusen. I mean, so... Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt. In in an alternate universe, and maybe one very, very closely to this one, not in 2021, 2022, of course, but you can make the argument that those are Germany's seven seven best clubs right now. I mean, it, that that's the state of, of German football currently. Um, is is that these clubs, these these recently very very good clubs, all have this managerial turnover at the same time? Thrilling conversation. Glad you all got to hear it. Again, if you want to go and and find Adam on social media, you can find him on Twitter at xxadamconxx. Uh, I will link his Twitter handle in the bio of uh, of this podcast episode as well. Also, don't forget follow me on Twitter at willfowler5. Follow Breaking the Lions on Twitter at BTLVid. If you like the kind of content that you heard over the last hour and a half or so, you will love what we run on the website and the other podcasts that we have as a part of our podcast network. So go and follow us on Twitter again at BTLVid. Plenty more where this came from for daily tactical analysis, uh, podcasts, articles, videos, everything. As a matter of fact, we just did uh, an interview, BTL did, with uh, with uh, uh, one Mr. Fabrizio Romano, which is a pretty cool get, I suppose. It's a pretty it's a pretty neat coup to pull off an interview with the king of football Twitter. So go and give that a listen as well. You can find that on our Twitter page. You can find that on our Instagram page as well. Uh, that will do it for me. I look forward to seeing all of you right back here next week for episode nine. We'll have a whole fresh new slate of topics to discuss. You're not going to want to miss it. If you liked what you heard and you haven't heard our first seven episodes, go back and give a listen to those as well. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, my name is Will Fowler. You've been listening to the Tactics Room Podcast presented by Breaking the Lines.